Hi, and welcome to Axelbank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Dr. Peter Coleman, the author of The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization. He's a research scientist on conflict resolution at Columbia University, where he's taught for decades. Thanks so much for being here, Dr. Coleman. Oh, thank you, Evan. It's good to be on. Before we start our interview, I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. You know the feeling when a baseball player you don't like suddenly comes to your team and hits a big home run, and suddenly you don't hate him so much? Well, a recent headline on a major news website was, Biden is getting dragged in the polls, but that has not stopped Democrats from sticking by him. His overall approval rating is just 40%, but over 90% of Democrats still support him. We all know never Trumpers who became Trumpers once he was the leader of their team. I will ask what that says about politics, but first, Dr. Coleman, you say that polarization is making us miserable. That phenomenon, sticking by the guy on your team or the lady on your team at any cost, even best friends who support different candidates can suddenly seem distant. Dr. Coleman, you say that why you say what we are living through right now is even worse than the Civil War, the Vietnam War, and Watergate. Really? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's worse than the Civil War, but it definitely is a parallel with the 1850s. Uh, this is a, a comparison that has been drawn by John Meacham and Doris Kearns Goodwin and other noted historians because they looked at basically events in the 1850s, which is right before the U.S. Civil War, where you had a, you know, a major secessionist movement, you had a disinformation empire campaign, and you had um, you know, a highly contested election and distrust in, in you know, our major institutions, which we all have today. The difference today is that we have you know, social media platforms that are accelerants of polarization and you know, contempt and animosity. We have the politicization and entertainmentization of mainstream news, which contributes to it. And we have a country with uh, more than 400 million guns. So we are in a place where um, the, the patterns of division are increasing exponentially and the potential for violence is, is high. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's definitely, I mean, I lived through the 60s. I wasn't here in the 1850s and I wasn't here <clears throat> at other tumultuous times in our history. But um, I think the potential for things getting a lot worse before they get better uh, is high. Let's define the term real quick. What does polarization mean, the definition of it, both in the dictionary and as we see it in our daily lives? Yeah, great question because, so polarization is really, it's a phenomenon in science. It's really just when you see basically elements move away from one another toward one pole and away from the other. So, you know, we're kind of attracted to one side and repulsed by the other side. And that happens again in physics, light waves do that magnetic, magnetic, filaments do that. Um, and in pol politics, polarization is not a bad thing. In fact, in a two-party system, we need it. You need to have passionate, informed, 
you know, believers on either side that challenge each other and keep us in check. It, it can serve as a check and balance. It can serve as a way to kind of push us forward and find more innovative policies and programs. Um, so it's a good thing. And in fact, in the 1950s, there was a period where the party, our two-party system overlapped too much and people felt like they couldn't see daylight between them and they needed more polarization. So that's a good thing. What's different today is that we are in a state that I call toxic polarization. And this is when we have, we're really alienated so much from the other side that we have less contact, less communication. We kind of ruminate within our own camps about them. We see them <clears throat> as more extreme than they really are. That in, triggers more extreme attitudes and reactions within us. Um, so it's, it, we're in a, and it's making us sick. You know, there's, evidence that just suggests that our anxiety, our depression, our suicidal ideation, and this is, of course, not only caused by, by political polarization, but it's caused by our times. And if we're alienated from members of our family and our community, it contributes to it. So it's definitely a toxin and it's highly addictive. There's research on brain science that looks at how when you feel a sense of, you know, triggered by a sense of outrage against the other, and get a little taste of the potential for retaliation, it triggers the pleasure centers in our brain that are triggered by heroin. So it is a narcotic substance that can be addictive. And unfortunately, you know, many businesses and politicians understand this, right? They play on our addiction to this. The media, social media platforms know it, they play on outrage, you know, and and content, or contempt and contention. It's the coin of the realm. Um, but so does mainstream media and certainly so do many politicians. They're, and that's, they're, a, that's of course also true with the way districts, it's, uh, I should say it's reinforced with the way congressional districts and state legislative districts are drawn to further put people in their camps. And then the representatives don't have to appeal to a large swath of the electorate, just the people they've chosen to appeal to. Um, uh, Let me add, though, I think yeah, that's true. Ahead. It's true that gerrymandering does that. It puts us in camps. It makes the politics uh, and campaigns more toxic. But it's also true that Americans are sorting ourselves. Not only on the Internet do we get sorted, but physically we're moving away from each other. Not So Republicans are moving closer to Republicans, Democrats closer to Democrats, not just across rural urban divides, but within cities. You're seeing these within neighborhoods. And this is a recipe for the potential for violence. Before we get more into the impact that polarization has on us and on our politics, I do want to ask Dr. Coleman also, and this is not meant to be a cheeky question at all, uh, yeah. what do you know? What makes someone qualified to write a book on the pain partisanship causes? I thought your background in the science of this is fascinating. Explain your credentials and your, qualifi your qualifications. Yes. Uh, so I've worked uh, in, you know, I've, wor I've started working years ago with violent youth and trying to understand violence in society. And, uh, and then I became a, a psychologist. I've studied at Columbia and I studied, um, you know, basically conflict and peace. And so I have, I run a f couple of research centers at Columbia. I've been there for about 25 years. And one is focused on mostly trying to understand, you know, deeply divided societies, long-term intractable conflicts like Israel-Palestine or Northern Ireland, but also like what we're seeing in the U.S. today. And 
And particularly in that realm, what we're interested in is the conditions under which sub, such societies change. When do they pivot? What are their what leads to them moving out of you know either civil war or violence or intergroup you know stress and moving in a more positive direction? The other project I run is a project on sustain, sustainable peaceful sustainably peaceful societies. There are hundreds of societies across the world that at some point oftentimes come out of violence, pivot, and then organize their society in ways that really promotes harmonious relations. And this is true in you know, Mauritius and in Botswana. It's true in the Scandinavian countries, Costa Rica, Singapore, New Zealand. These countries are all nations and societies are all over the world. And there's a lot we can learn if we take them seriously and study them. So those are, those are the major areas of research that I've been involved in for about 25 years. One of the opening rifts in, uh, riffs in your book is on the city of Boston and how Boston is a perfect place to understand how polarization happens and what the impacts of it are. And you give examples from, <laughs> from the beginning of the city of Boston all the way to the Boston Red Sox. Um, explain Boston. Why Boston? <laughs> well, yeah, I definitely picked on Boston. I mean, one of the reasons I chose to pick on Boston, well, t- there were two reasons. One is because there was a recent study done of the various counties in, you know, there are 3,000 plus counties in the U.S. And there was a study done by a group called PredictWise to try to find the most and the least politically tolerant uh, counties. And Boston is in the 1% of the most politically intolerant co- counties in the, in the country. So it, it, it currently is very polar, polarized politically. But yeah, I just sort of pointed to the history of contentious, divisive politics that have been evident in Boston. But most importantly, including with some issues around the Boston Red Sox, but most importantly, I chose Boston because there is a case in Boston of, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, um, it's a place where pro-life, pro-choice conflict has been intense and ripe for decades. And particularly in the 80s and 90s, uh, the rhetoric around pro-life and pro-choice, it's a, it's a highly Catholic uh, um, city, I think 36% Catholics there. And the, the tensions there at that time were at... Uh, a peak, and and there was then this horrible shooting that took place in several clinics um, and women's centers, and several people were killed or injured, and it was a rupture. And at that time, uh, one response was that a group of women leaders that were three pro-life, three pro-choice, were invited to come together in a in a secret clandestine dialogue, just for you know four meetings. And they did. They came together. They were terrified to meet with the other side. They feared for their lives. They feared for their reputations and their careers. But they had enough trust in the conveners of this process, a group called the Public Conversations Project at the time. And and in doing so, they agreed to kind of continue the conversations as difficult as they were, as painful and, 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 you know, uh, threatening as they were. They continued these these dialogues for five and a half years. So they ultimately went that long. And ultimately, what's interesting about the dialogue that took place there on this issue is that, A, the women grew to become very close and affectionate for one another and respectful of one another and really appreciate 
the, 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 the wisdom and the care and the seriousness of, of both sides. And B, they became further apart in their attitudes on uh, pro-life and pro-choice. In other words, talking to people that they cared about in really honest ways actually moved them further apart but they did so in a way where they didn't vilify the other side. They didn't see them as evil. They saw them as people who differ on a very important issue from them and who are caring and decent people. And what, what ultimately it, it affected was their, how they did their advocacy and activism, how they, the kinds of rhetoric they put out in the community, and they radically changed that. And ultimately some argue that it, helped turn the temperature down in the country on this issue because of their leadership, which was considerable. And you say that our perception of the others, in quotes, is off, that the other side is not as extreme as one side might think. Yeah, that's true. There's a group called More in Common that has been studying this, and they find this perception gap. So we believe, you know, Democrats believe that most Republicans, particularly Trump Republicans, have much more extreme attitudes and positions on different policies and take more extreme actions than they actually do. And the same is true on the other side. Republicans see that. So what that does is if you believe the other side is more, much more extreme, it tends to elicit more extremism in our own attitudes, in our own reactions and actions. So there's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy that happens when we see them as further out than they are. Speaking of, uh, you wrote this book during the last few years and yeah. our country, you, we got a real clash, crash course in polarization the last few years. Uh, COVID-19 turned into a tremendously partisan issue. Yeah. Social justice marches, there was an impeachment there was a, it just so happens there was an election in 2020. Yeah. How did your experience watching all of these things go down on TV, on the internet, on social media impact the way you wrote the book? Well, that's a great question. It was a strange uh, era to be working on this book. On the one hand, I could feel a sense of urgency because things seemed to be heating up and so difficult. And I felt that some of the responses and reactions, you know, good and well-intentioned people, you know, trying to kind of bridge the divides were not sufficiently informed by the research. They were doing well-intentioned, you know, like encouraging people just to get together across the Trump divide and have a cup of coffee and meet each other and talk it out. But oftentimes those things would backfire and explode and make people feel more alienated. A Pew research finds that something like 70% of the left and the right that come together with the other side and have a conversation, leave feeling worse, more alienated, more frustrated and, and less engaged. So I wanted to, as I was writing this, I felt a sense of urgency about doing this, but yeah, constantly there were events that were taking place that were more outrageous than the previous events, all the way up to January 6th and the storming of the Capitol. And so it's kind yeah, of an extraordinary time. that, right? I mean, yeah, you know, it's an extraordinary time to be sitting and trying to think about what do we do as this runaway train, you know, continues to run away and even get derailed. <laughs> when I say that I forgot about that, I didn't mean that I forgot about it. I meant that I didn't mention it in that brief list I just gave. Um, yeah. You say in your book that this is not about winning the fight against polarization. You say it's about finding a way out 
of the polarization. Uh, yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, so what's important to realize is that it, 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 like the women in Boston, it is okay to fundamentally disagree with people on moral issues, but not basically create the conditions where violence occurs. And so we have to figure out how to pull this country back from political violence, from the spike in hate crimes, the spike in hate groups that we see across the country, and pull us into you know, a more reasonable and functional, frankly, kind of space. So, and, and there are two ways to do that. One is that you, know, you, you continue to fight the fight, but doing so and vilifying the other just escalates things. The other is to find alternatives. You find ways of speaking, ways of working across the aisle. And, and fortunately, one of the benefits of writing this book for the past several years is that I've learned about countless groups in community levels, in Congress, in journalism, in business that are doing this work. There are good bridge building there are, you know, organizations and groups happening across the country, thousands of them. And that's, you know, hopeful. And so my book tries to kind of highlight them, encourage people to find them, work with them, learn from them, because there is in every community good actors that are trying to bring the temperature down and, and keep people in a more civil place so that as a democracy, we can be more functional and move forward and address some of these major problems that we're facing and not just, you know, get derailed by oftentimes ridiculous conversations about whether we should build a wall or not. You told a story in the book that I thought was fascinating that I want to have you retell here on the show. Um, but the story is of a reporter who came to uh, the United States to speak with someone on each side on, I mean, yeah. if you can put people in two camps, I mean, I hate the words both sides, but because there are yeah. many sides, but um, he did his best to find two people with opposing views and he brought them together and they went to a basketball game together. And for a while it worked. And then all of a sudden it didn't work. Uh, what was the breakdown there? Explain what their goal was and how close they came to achieving it or not. Yeah, so this was one of those stories that really motivated me to try to be clear about when those kinds of, you know, encounters, bringing people together across these divides work and when they don't. This was a, a reporter from a German periodical. He came here right after Trump was elected, met these two men. One was a yoga teacher in Brooklyn. One was, a, a you know, a vet and, and worked in and lived in Pennsylvania. Um, he was a Trumper. The, the Brooklynite was not, was, you know, adamant anti-Trumper. And they both were interested in kind of meeting each other. But the reporter met them, followed them, did reporting on them for about a year, and, and you know, developed relationships with them. He liked them. He thought they were good people, good guys, good family men. They were, you know, good in their communities. They, you know, contributed in their communities. So at some point he thought, you know, these guys should meet. They want to. Let's bring them together. So they brought them Together, they brought them to New York City. They had breakfast. They went for a walk in the park. Conversation went pretty well. Then, yeah, they decided uh, to meet the next night um, at a basketball game and then go for drinks. And frankly, after a couple of beers, one of them, in fact, it was the reporter, mentioned Colin Kaepernick. And Colin Kaepernick was the tipping point. And at that point, 
one of them started to say the F-bombs and the other got triggered and they just went off and it got threatening and they stormed out and never agreed, you know, never agreed to come back together again or to talk to the reporter. So again, it was a well-intentioned gesture by the reporter, but it was not mindful of the landmines that many of us live in or live with and what can be triggered these days when people are not brought together in under the conditions that are conducive to those kinds of conversations. And do you think it was their brain chemistry that reacted a certain way that they literally couldn't control themselves and they could no longer see eye to eye anymore as two good family men. Instead, it was one person on one side, one person on the other side, the two shall not meet. You know, some of these issues, you know, that, that are dividing us are, are deeply symbolic and psychologically important issues. You know, I think, uh, you know, one was a vet and he had lost friends in, in you know, Iraq, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so the whole idea of Kaepernick not kind of respecting that, or at least that's how he saw it, <clears throat> was triggering for him. The other guy, you know, I think was sort of, uh, his father was a military man and he had been kind of, <clears throat> you know, disrespected by his father, kind of disowned by his father. So they, they both had these kind of deep psychological connections to that issue that were triggering under the conditions where you're kind of, sh you know, shooting this crap with somebody else over a couple of beers and somebody says something about Kaepernick and somebody makes a wise statement and off they went. So again, th that's, that is the kind of psychological landmines that many of us fall into. I mean, I had an experience like this recently. This is a more benign, but, you know, I was watching the U.S. Open. Love the U.S. Open. Watching tennis, right? And I'm watching a player, um, what's his name? Uh, Stephanos uh, Tsitsipis, who's a Greek, you know, up-and-coming challenger, charismatic player, you know, handsome young guy. And I learn in the context of this that, A, he's an anti-vaxxer. B, He's a, he's a vocal proponent of anti-vax, so much so that the Greek government has had to kind of, you know, distance themselves from his position and see that over 50% of the players are not getting vaccinated, of the, of the tennis players. And so hearing that triggered me because A, I had COVID. B, I've been vaccinated three times, you know, with some, of, some consequences, but, you know, feel protected. And I feel, you know, so suddenly... I had trouble watching the U.S. Open. I had trouble, you know, enjoying this kid's Even tennis. Even something you enjoy, yeah. Yeah, and I loved and usually really appreciate, but the politics of it, and, you know, again, my experience was the kind of selfishness of it, misinformation or the hubris of it, whatever, triggers me, right? And so it, dis it derails me and it, it affects my life. These landmines are all over us, you know, and we see it with, you know, mask mandates. We see it there, you know, there have been this intense spike of violence on planes against flight attendants and other passengers because of people denying masks or refusing to participate, you know. So this country is filled with these things that are all tied to the politics of division and to the weaponization of things like COVID. COVID, what, you know, is a biological threat to human species. It should have been a uniter. It should have brought us together in solidarity to fight this thing and to take it down and to protect ourselves and our communities. Instead, it gets weaponized, continues to be weaponized politically, which just speaks to how much of a first order problem our political polarization is, so much so 
that it 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 trumps you know part sorry for the for the pun but it it trumps you know a pandemic a global pandemic and yet um even still you say you're writing this book on behalf of supporters of a particular president that you were not a fan of um yeah. what do you hope that achieves um, sympathizing with those who support a candidate that you found destructive. Yeah. Well, again, I, what I try not to do is essentialize all of those voters, right? Half of the country and realize that there's a lot of different kinds of motives that people, you know, uh, use or are driven by when they, when they make a choice, you know, part of the problem in our country is that these are dichotomous choices. It's like this one or this one, you know. And sometimes that, you know, that leads us to this kind of divisive types of thinking. And even putting a third party is seen as potentially giving it to one of the other two to the other group you don't like. Yeah, I think logistically, practically, that's true right now. Unless a third party grows, that is sort of a meaningful and and you know actually potential third party or you know uh, contestant in the elections. But I wanted to answer your question because yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. no, no. The you know there are there's a group. This group more in common um, has been studying America, and they find that you know they're not kind of two sides to this issue, but there are at least what they call seven tribes. That there are different groups, some more moderate, some more extreme, that lean left, lean right, um, and that that's an important distinction because again, the story of politics in America today is being driven by the extremes. They're the most engaged, the most active, the loudest voices in the room on Twitter, on Facebook. And so they're the ones that are shaping the story. But there are the rest of us, and that's something like 86% of America, which are more moderate in the middle, whether you're you know totally in the middle or you're a little left, little right. And those people are what this group calls the exhausted majority. They're a group of Americans that are either disengaged from politics because we're so disillusioned or we're just fed up. You know, we're fed up with the screaming and the news and the, you know, the, even the comedy. It's like all a, an, an attack on the other and people are fed up with it. And, and to some degree, what our research tells us is that's a good thing. It's a hopeful thing. Because one of the conditions that's oftentimes necessary for warring societies to stop and pivot is that kind of exhaustion and, and really what they call a mutually hurt, hurting stalemate. We feel like this is too painful. The status quo isn't helping us. This, this constant fighting and bickering and weaponizing is getting us nowhere. We need to find another way. And so this is a promising time as exhausting and toxic as it is man you just got you just beat me because i was just going to get there to the three factors that have okay. to be in place to help end this kind of polarization so yeah. uh instability is one a harmful stalemate is the second one which is what you're talking about there and then of course the third is an opportunity um i feel like one and two instability and a stalemate are taken care of but how about three? Where do people find the opportunity at this point? Yeah, so that's what the book's about. I mean, the book that I wrote this book to to explain to people what they can do because I, you know, there are a lot of good books out and you know films and accounts of, and it's easy to see polarization in our world and how it's run away. Um, so people get that, and I don't think we need to kind of reinforce that. 
but we, we need to recognize that it's not a it's not a small problem. It's not something that I can just fix by sitting down with somebody on the other side and having a conversation because that doesn't work. So what the book offers is kind of five things. These are things that I've cherry picked from either our research or from other good, robust research that helps us understand what to do. What are the kind of activities that we can do in our life that make a difference? My favorite is, is change your theory of change. I love that one. Yeah, well, again, you know, we tend to, humans think about problems like clocks, you know, problem, and this is a distinction that Karl Popper offered, who's a philosopher of science, and he said, you know, that, that we, most of the problems we face in our life are, are clock problems. You know, if our car breaks down, you get a mechanic, they find it's your carburetor, they replace it, and you get back into your car. If your computer breaks down, you send it in, they, you know, replace the motherboard, then you're back in business. So that's how we tend to think about solving problems is that they're, you know, take things apart, you find the thing and you fix it. So when people said, all right, well, let's just bring this yoga instructor and this guy from Pennsylvania together, having a conversation, that's going to help. That's going to fix it. Well, it didn't because there are too many other things that are pulling them apart against each other, even though this was a well-intentioned gesture. So when, if we think about this, kind of era of toxic polarization as like any other political era era and that the the solutions are the same as they've always been we're wrong we have to really see this different so i liken this current state of affairs of political affairs in the us to addiction it's a biopsychosocial structural problem which means that it's already changed my physiology, my neurological structures are such that I am much more inclined to listen to some kinds of news and get some kinds of information and really have to push myself to even process other information. That's like a, a, a neurological structure that's evolved in addition to my psychology, to my social networks, who I talk to, who I don't talk to, where I live, where I don't live, where I choose to go on vacation, where I won't go on vacation, my, the internet that I watch, the media I watch, you know, there are many levels that are pulling us apart. And so this is not something that can be fixed by just deciding, okay, I'm fed up. I'm just going to reach out to my neighbor and talk to them because it doesn't work. So we have to think about this as a radically different kind of problem and approach it in a different way. Explain what, I love some of your chapter titles. They were a lot of fun. Explain what locate the latent bubbles means. Yeah. So in any family or any, you know, or workplace or community or even, you know, scaling it up, there are good people, you know, so in my family, if there's a tension, I have a bunch of siblings. And if I have tension with one of my siblings um, and I try to work it out and we keep getting into worse places, then I turn to the one person in my family who we all sort of hold in high esteem, right? My old sort of oldest brother. And I turn to them, him and say, hey, I, we need help with this <laughs> because, you know, Patrick and I are not getting anywhere. We're stuck on these issues. Can you help us with this? And then the three of us sit down and it helps because he is held in esteem. We trust him. We, you know, we really care for him and he's a good broker of that. So most families, all workplaces, and all communities have these things which are called positive deviance. And I call them that because at a time when 
you know, people are move, physically moving away from each other, when people assume the worst of each other, when we don't trust our government anymore, we don't trust the media, we don't trust lawyers, we don't trust business, you know, in these times, there are some actors or some groups that we can trust and that we do trust. And so I recommend that you find them and you reach out to them and say, can you help us with this? Can you help my, me talk to my brother or my brother-in-law? We have some tensions at work, so maybe there's someone else that you bring in. Or you look at your community. There's a, there's a website that I want to po point people to called the Bridging Divides Initiative. It's out of Princeton, and it's a map of the U.S. And if you go to it, you can zoom in and you can click on your county or your town, and it will tell you the kinds of groups and organizations that are there that are bringing people together across divides. It might be racial divides, it might be political divides, but they're, they're good at this. They've done this for a long time. They know how to create conditions that are safe for people where they can have these conversations in a way that helps. And those are positive bubbles that exist in a sea of you know, tension. And so finding those, you know, the, I mean, the good news is they exist and they exist all over the country and they exist in different sectors. They even exist in Congress today. There are groups in Congress that are doing really good bipartisan work, despite what we see on the news. So finding them um, first as a first step is a way to, again, engage with this problem that is bigger than us. How do we address what's in your chapter about adaptation? The question you ask is who is going to lead? Um, what do we all do with ourselves when we're looking around for the next inspirational figure? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the, the chapter in that, it's interesting. My daughter recently, who's 27, read the book, liked it a lot, but then said, you know, that last chapter on adaptation is hard. <laughs> you know, it's just like hard news because, as you know, you know, in America, we want simple answers. We want quick fixes. We want to know, oh, what you do is you take this pill and polarization will go away, you know, or you, you know, have this conversation and it'll be fine. And what the chapter, which is about adapting, tells us is that this is going to take time, that we have to recognize that this kind of, you know, this 60-year trajectory that we're on as a country at, that is multi-level is not going to be addressed through a conversation or in an hour with somebody. Um, but it does it can, they can get, it can get better, but we have to do the hard work. So here's what, let me give you an illustration of this. There's a, there's a part of the uh, country, upstate New York, called, um, called Jefferson County, um, and a town there called Waterton, uh, New York. I know, there, I know Jefferson County. I, I used to work in Syracuse, and I covered a couple of stories up there. So I know okay. Jefferson County. Okay, so Jefferson County is in the top 1% of the most politically tolerant counties, even though... It's in the center of Trump country. It went to Trump, I think, 20 With a big points. military base there, yeah. Yeah, major uh, military base. Um, but what's interesting is that there are certain qualities to, for example, Waterton, that um, lend itself to being more politically tolerant, like there are more mixed marriages there, right? Mixed Republican, Democratic marriages. There used to be many more in the country it's declined so that they're in the, the worst places, there are only 10%. Here it's more 25 or 30% of the couples are, you know, and what that means is if you have a husband and wife or partners that are together, different political orientations, 
you know, they're kids here, different sides. And so they tend to be socialized in a way that's more respectful of the other side, you know. So it has these kinds of long-term consequences. But one of the stories that uh, there's an article a colleague of mine, Amanda Ripley, wrote about Waterton. And one of the stories they, she, she found is that there was a preacher there who had Monday morning breakfasts. And he would invite partisans from both sides or all sides to this breakfast. He would cook it. They would come every week back and again and again. And he said, you know, there's a, there's a, a, a recipe here for bridge building, which is that A, you make a good breakfast that people like. <laughs> B, you have people who are, you know, from very different positions coming together, but they come back enough and they talk enough about the issues that they start to realize what they don't understand. And that's when you start to have candid conversations because take immigration. It's an immensely complicated issue. And we simplify it into these stupid talking. Wall or no wall. Yeah. Right. Which are just meaningless and really avoids the topic. So when these people come together again and again and again and keep, you know, not only does it like the Boston Dialogue Group start to have them connect to each other in emotional ways and they learn to, you know, like and respect each other, but they also realize that these are complicated issues and they are. There are all the issues that are dividing us. The pandemic, like what's the right way to respond to the pandemic? We won't know that until 10 years from now, you know? These were the right decisions. These were the wrong decisions. So thinking that you know and you can, you know, therefore weaponize and blame the other side is, is just obscene. There will be people who hear you say that. Just yeah. blame the other side. That's obscene. You can't do that um, because both, I hate both, but yeah. the two different sides react chemically when they hear the other side and then they start um as you put it filtering themselves into their own groups but yeah. some will hear that and say no 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 we have to address in order to address the polarization we have to address the root of why we are polarized and then they will blame the other side and say republicans or democrats are yeah. more to blame is it an important question to answer whose fault this is but it's a, it's an important thing to reflect on, but ultimately it's an important thing to take some responsibility for because we're all triggered. We all react in ways that we're not proud of. And we say things either in private, in our home or on our social media that we're not proud of. So there's, you know, all of us in big and little ways are contributing. Certainly there are, this, there, there's not, there's not a, a symmetry to what's happening here. You know, one political party has been weaponizing, particularly COVID, in a way much more than the other. But the left is also responsible for what they do with that information and how they respond to that. So there is plenty of responsibility to go around here. Um, and, you know, yeah, blame is cheap. Blame is a reactive kind of quality. I understand it. I feel it all the time. But the question you have to ask yourself is, where is it getting us? Like, ultimately, is there, you know, is there value in blame, in attack, in, you know, confrontation like that? Or do we have to learn to suck it up? I mean, look, you know, people in war zones across the world have been able to turn the corner by accepting, you know, in, in Rwanda, you know, people have been able to begin to reconcile enough with those atrocities. If they can do it, why can't we do it? 
What do you hope people feel? And maybe more importantly, what do you hope people do after they read your book or listen to this podcast episode? Well, I hope that there are, you know, a handful of things that um, pop for people that resonate for people as, you know, that's something that I could do, or, you know, I've never thought about that, or this is something I really want to try. So, you know, what I try to do in the book is I have these kind of five principles and then I lay, I lay out, well, what does that mean for you and your choices? What does that mean in your family? What does that mean in your community? All the way up to national, you know, policy structures. So depending on who you are, certain things are going to resonate or not, right? I, I would like people to walk away with a few things that they can do. The book culminates in a set of what I call new rules, which are, you know, if you find yourself triggered by somebody, some, some tweet that came out or something that's said on the news or something your neighbor says, these are nudges. These are small things that you can practice in your life and say, okay, let me try this. You know, I want to do this, but let me try this. And those give people a sense of, of efficacy in this time. You know, we do all feel like we're just suckers and we're being played and, and it's, it is making us sick. And so if we can be mindful of that, then we can try to find some kind of control over this runaway train and start to make at least changes in our own life, if not, you know, at a higher level. But let's face it, we all, all the time think we need to address a friend of ours or a family member who's saying things that make us angry. Yeah. Let's just say that we do what you say we shouldn't try to do, which is sit down and try to explain to them our side, or at least you say that it doesn't work. Um, How can we sit down with somebody? What should we say to somebody when we just feel we have to express ourselves? You're saying something that offends me or hurts me. So again, you may need help with that. It may not be something that you can just do yourself. I mean, if, if you've tried to have that conversation with a neighbor or a friend or somebody um, that you feel increasingly estranged from and it's going nowhere and getting worse, then you may need to help have invite somebody else in to do it. But one of the, like, I just posted a piece on Thanksgiving because people are anxious about, you know, it's, it's, we're in a place where people are going to start to go get back together and we have these divides and it might be a, a mask divide or a vaccine divide or a Trump or, you know, whatever. Um, and what I say to people is, look, it, it, the first thing you want to ask yourself is what do I hope will happen in this, you know, at this dinner? Do I hope it goes well? Is it warm that we have some fun or, you know, do I need to, do I want to take this guy on again and shame them and humiliate them and show them how wrong they are in their decisions. Right. Well, if that's really what you want to do, have at it, enjoy it, go for it. But no, it's going to escalate. That's what it does. Right. <laughs> if your intention is to not do that and to either to have a different kind of conversation, then what I would do is what I recommend is, you know, if there's some, I have a brother-in-law and my brother-in-law is, is pretty rigid in his thinking and I know this is going to get tough. Well, I may reach out to him beforehand and say, look, let's not do this at Thanksgiving because it makes, you know, our mother sick and it's problematic for everybody else. It's stressful. But I tell you what, Friday, let's you and I go for a walk. Let's go for a walk outside, which, by the way, is a chapter in the book that there is real value and utility in actually physically getting up with people you differ from and walking side by side outside because it, it gets it, it's a 
kind of secret weapon. It helps connect you in ways that are physiological and that kind of movement together is helpful. And, you know, and then try to not launch immediately into politics, but launch into what's important to you right now, what's happening for you that's important in your life right now, and, and ask them the same and try to find ways to connect like that, and eventually move back into an issue once you feel like you've built enough trust or rapport. But again, these, these are not short conversations. These are not, let's have a, a beer and, and solve this issue. You have to do the groundwork to get to a place where you can have the conversation over these important differences that you feel good about. We all know how this feels, or at least if you have a phone that has Twitter on it or Facebook on it, and you sit there and you find yourself boop, 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 scrolling, 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 scrolling. The term is doom scrolling. Yeah. We all need a break from this. What what are the best ways we can um, put the phone down and how do we tell ourselves it's okay, you don't have to keep scrolling, you don't have to keep reading these posts that are making you angry? What do we have to remind ourselves in our internal dialogue every day to get ourselves to stop doing these things that you say are making us sick? Yeah. Well, it's a good question. I mean, I, I do think that we can all, in small ways, we can start small. So, you know, agree to turn your phone off for an hour a day. You know, there's some time maybe that you get pr particularly seduced, turn it off, you know, <laughs> and just say you know, people, I'm, I'm, you know, between one and two, I'm out of here. Just know that. And start small so that you can kind of wean yourself off of the addiction that is our, our, is our phones, right? We are all highly addicted to it and literally addicted to it. So one way to do it is that. But there are, you know, bigger things that we can do. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's no coincidence that we get addicted to Facebook and Twitter and, you know, Instagram because it is about competition, social comparison, confrontation, provocation, outrage. Those are the, the feelings that these companies are playing on and preying on. So we, you know, certainly the government has things that they can do in terms of different kinds of regulations or a fairness doctrine or bringing that back. But the consumers have power too. The consumers can say, I am pulling off of Facebook or I am pulling, you know, if you're going to do this, we are out. And uh, I think there's got to be more political action like that, that's bottom up political action, which frankly feels good when you start to realize that you're being manipulated by billionaires who just want more billions. What's next for you? What uh, you've written the way out? Uh, don't write the way in, I'll tell you that. Uh, uh, what, <laughs> what, what's, what research are you working on now? Yeah, the biggest project that I have right now is, uh, is working on sustainably peaceful societies. We're working to, we've been for now about 10 years visiting and studying these places that are kind of fascinating places where you learn interesting insights. So like Give me an one example. Place, yeah. Well, there's one place, Mauritius, that we've done some uh, local work with. We have local partners in Mauritius. Mauritius is the most peaceful nation in Africa. It's an island off of the coast of uh, off of the east coast of Africa, um, and but it's a highly multi-ethnic place. You know, there's a lot of Hindus and Muslims and Christians, and 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 um, there's you know there's inequality. There's a history of slavery and indentured servitude. So it's not a place that 
has always been some utopia. It's had a lot of problems, but they've, they're, they're today really proud of the fact that they are very tolerant, very peaceful. And so here's one insight that I got. There, you know, there are all of these different religions that are living together, um, and they really value the fact that people are spiritual. But there is a taboo against proselytizing. Each community agrees that you don't go after the other community's followers. That is just like, you know, it's not, you, it's not done. And that's interesting because like, you know, most of these uh, religions have this legacy of missionaries that go off and try to recruit new people, new believers. And there it's like, no, you don't do that. <laughs> you know, we like that people are spiritual. We like that they, you know, have the values with these, uh, you know, organized religions, but we don't want them pilfering from each other. And it's not the only answer, but it's part of a constellation of kind of norms and taboos that help these societies both remain peaceful, but also when there are shocks, you know, when there's influx of immigrants, when there's the downturns of economics, when there are these destabilizing things, they're able to adjust in ways because of the norms and taboos they have that allow them to remain more harmonious. Dr. Peter Coleman, Columbia University, author of The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me and, um, and good luck with Thanksgiving. <laughs> we'll all take that. Uh, check out the book, his Twitter feed also. It's at Peter T. Coleman One. His website is thewayoutofpolarization.com. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash axelbankhistory. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. Thank you for listening to Axel Bank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axel Bank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. See you next time. Thanks. <laughs>